These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. No figure in Akkadian history is more maligned and more exalted than Naram Sin. Make no mistake, Naram Sin is going to raise the Akkadian Empire to heights unmatched in all domains, military, economic, and religious, building on what the three previous kings had laid down with inspired genius. There is a black mark on his name in the annals of history, but this is entirely slander. It is, however, interesting slander, so I will be devoting the next episode to it, but this episode will be all about the truth of Naram's sin, and that truth is one of victories and glory. Naram's sin was born early in the 23rd century BCE to Manish Tushu. His name is a two-part benediction to the god Sin, a fairly common type of name in Mesopotamia, literally meaning beloved of Sin, the moon god. He would have followed his father and possibly also his uncle before that on campaign and assisted in the palace, spending his formative years learning the business of Akkadian government from the very top. We know nothing in particular about how he came to power, but he seems to have grown tired of waiting to be king, and so following his father's example, he convinced the courtiers and scribes that his father had grown weak and indolent and needed to be replaced by a more vigorous leader. Seeing young Naram Sin's obvious potential and the relative lack of campaigning that managed to show had undertaken in his 15 long years, the court went with the more masculine option and murdered managed to show in the halls of his own palace. Naram Sin ascended the throne to unanimous acclaim, or at least unanimous among Akkadian nobles within the capital city. For the rest of the empire, a patricidal usurper was hardly preferable to the deft and light touch of the consummate politician managed to show, and seeing the best opportunity in 20 years, the cities began to plot among themselves. Now, note on chronology here. We are finally starting to get to a place where dates get more agreed upon, though there are still alternative chronologies with a certain level of acceptance. By our standard dating system, Naram Sin takes the throne in the year 2254 BCE. But of course, the Akkadians did not date their own documents by counting down until the coming of Jesus Christ. Previously, each city would have had their own dating system, and it's believed that Sargon may have pioneered a calendar reform in which every single year was given a particular name by the king based on the most significant event of the year. This then required scribes to make year name lists informing us which event was most important in the year, who was king, and in what order they all occurred. As you can imagine, these are incredibly useful for later historians, but sadly only a bare handful of year names survived from the first three kings of Akkad. Presumably, the system took a while to adopt completely. But with Naram Sin, we have the first for whom we have a partially complete listing of year names, 20 of his 36 or 7 years as king. And so we can plot the course of his reign with more confidence than any king that's come before. And so we know that the most significant event in his first year was that the god of kings, Enlil, bestowed upon him the mace of kingship. Obviously, a very important task 
for him personally. Once he performs the rituals necessary to prove himself king, he needs to prove that he's going to be more active than the previous king. And unlike his father, he's not the sort to endlessly scan the map thinking about what can't be done. The Iranian mountain peoples had been a constant irritant to the people of the lowlands since basically forever, and it would not have been hard for Naram Sin to pick some raid or another as a cause for war, or even just loaded up with no cause at all. And so he rounds up the Akkadian military apparatus and marches everyone up into the highlands of the Lullaby Mountains. He remains in the east of the empire for three years, launching invasion after invasion up the treacherous mountain paths from forward bases in Susa and Awan. Three-year names were dedicated to three major tribes destroyed, and at the end of this campaign, the princes of the Lullaby, Sidur and Setuni, were slain. Again, we have no details on these campaigns, but they would have been massively difficult, since the Iranian mountains were always the most challenging place for logistics and fighting for Sumerian and Akkadian armies. But the most important part of these campaigns was not the great victory or the loot brought home, though surely quite a lot of loot was brought home. It was a single victory stella that Naram Sin erected following his triumph. Now, I will be honest, I don't find much Mesopotamian art to be actually very compelling. A certain kind of art historian says we can't judge ancient art because it's all just as good, but it's in different styles. I, on the other hand, consider this to be generally nonsense. Old art, in large part, is largely just terrible. Still, Naram Sin's Victory Stella is a clear step up for the artistic style and actually pretty compelling as a composition, with a fair bit of expression in realism, though still not at the level the Greeks would be reaching two millennia later. I will post a picture of this Stella in the companion post on oldeststories.net. Anyway, the stella is a carved relief showing the end of the battle. Ranks of disciplined Akkadian soldiers facing off against disorganized and defeated barbarians. At the top of the image, one foot supported by a brave, noble Akkadian soldier and one foot on a barbarian corpse stands Naram Sin. Larger than life, as is the usual way of depicting kings, his gaze directed toward Shamash the Sun and one of the dynasty's favorite gods. And most important is that his head is not bare and bald as was usual. Rather, he's wearing a horned helm, a symbol reserved for gods. It was a pretty massive shift when Sargon the Great was made into a god shortly after his death, but no one was really in a position to complain much, since at least he was dead and the likely complainers had just been beaten into submission by King Ramush. But when this kid strolls back into Akkad and begins his feast to celebrate his war victory and his ascension to godhood, it's frankly heretical and simply too much for many cities already verging towards rebellion. And so, right in the middle of his celebrations, he receives word that the walls of Akkad are surrounded by enemy forces demanding his head. This appears to have been a complete shock to him. 
Huge swaths of Sumer and Akkad had all risen up against his rule in a massive, coordinated, pre-planned rebellion. A man named Iperkish, who seems to have been some sort of local charismatic figure, was leading the city of Kish, and in turn the many smaller cities that were allied to it. While in the south, all hope of reinforcement was cut off because Uruk, too, had revolted and brought with it many of the ancient cities of Sumer who still dreamed of the days when they had independence. Surrounding the walls of Akkad were men from Kish, Borsippa, Kutha, Dilbat, Sippar, Kazalu, and even present were some semi-barbarian Amorite tribesmen, as well as some number of volunteers from the south who were swayed by the personal magnetism of Ipper Kish, or held a personal grudge against the Akkadian monarch, or were moved by the pious outrage that a mere man had proclaimed himself a god. The Akkadian period was a time of armies larger than had ever been seen before, and standing outside the walls of Akkad was likely a force surpassing even what Naram Sin had brought with him to defeat the Lullaby barbarians. Naram Sin ordered the gates closed to the invaders and assembled the city immediately. Before the masses, he made a great speech, not to the people, but to the sun god Shamash, patron of the Akkadian royal dynasty, god of justice and treaties, and the sun itself. Naram-Sin asked Shamash if Akkadian rule had been good for Kish. After all, he recalled out loud, hadn't it been his grandfather who had freed them from the days of stagnation under a poor king and protected them from the domination of Lugal Zagazi? Hadn't the proximity of the new capital brought all sorts of wealth and flourishing to the ancient neighbor? And hadn't the Akkadian dynasty made their principal title, King of Kish, resound throughout the world in glory? And now it's Naram Sin's moment of triumph. And now it's in Naram Sin's moment of triumph, when he reflects more glory than ever before that could have shined on the favored neighbor that the ungrateful Kishites chose to rebel against him. The son does not answer the king, but that's probably because the answer is so obvious. The Kishites and all their fellow rebels are insects dressed like humans and deserve to be crushed without mercy or hesitation. And with the god thus satisfied, Naram-Sin turns to his people, calling the men to arms and rallying their battle passions. Akkad may be surrounded, but having been the world's greatest capital for two generations, it is well supplied with massive imperial armories and plenty of men capable of taking up spear and bow. The Akkadian soldiers, the new god Naram-Sin foremost among them, shine with copper and bronze so polished that it hurts the rebels' eyes to look at as they march out from the gate and line up before the walls. The last 15 years had been ones of peace for most of the cities, and so most of the battle experience would have lain in the hearts of the Imperial Army, men who marched with confidence toward the rebels just as they had done against the barbarians for the last three years. The rebels, by contrast, were men of many cities, and even Amorites, with a variety of weapons and tactics and dialects. Not a ragtag bob by any means, but not the well-oiled war machine that Naram-Sin had been building. The Akkadians hit hard and the rebels shattered, corpses filling the fields around the capital. A long list of notable prisoners taken in this battle survives, 
But none of these names mean anything to us now, being the insignificant losers of history, obscure for good reason. The rebel leader, Ipher Kish, managed to survive and flee to Kish, where he and his surviving men hold up behind the walls like rats fleeing the cat. But Naram Sin pursued, and it turns out that he had begun making startling improvements to Akkadian siegecraft. He broke through the walls of Kish quickly, and there was another battle fought, with the Akkadians trapping a large portion of the rebels against the river, and, in slaughtering them, choked the Euphrates River with bodies. Those who escaped feared the retribution that they knew was coming, and a running battle in the streets finally saw the final 2,500 slain. Naram Sin looked at the destroyed and plundered rebel capital, its fighting men killed and its citizens taken into slavery or executed in genocidal vengeance, and decided it was not nearly enough. Kish would never again be given the chance to show ingratitude, and so he ordered the walls torn down brick by brick, and his slave labor force, including many former rebels, were forced to dig a channel that diverted the Euphrates River and flooded the ancient and venerable city. This was the end of the city of Kish for a generation, and while it would be re-inhabited in later days, it would never again reach the glory it had once possessed. But the destruction of the head of the Northern Rebellion was not enough. He needed to cut out its arms and legs as well. And so he marched his men up the Tigris River, destroying every city that had joined the rebellion, then marched across to the Euphrates and repeated the task on the way down, before setting off into the wilds to crush the Amorite tribesmen who had taken advantage of Akkad's momentary weakness. With the Northern Rebellion crushed, he turned his attention to the disobedient cities of the South. The situation in the South was a little different. Being further away, they hadn't had a chance to march on the walls of Akkad directly, and seemed to have been a bit more opportunistic, hoping to take the chance offered by the Kishite Rebellion to simply take back their independence, reasoning that if everyone left the Empire together, then there would be no one able to put it back together. Amar Girid was the nominal leader of the Sumerians and had gotten together many of the major cities of the age, his own Uruk being joined by Adab, Isin, Nippur, Shurapak, and the rivals Lagash and Umma. It seems he was also sending letters by the very efficient Akkadian postal system to cities far to the north in Assyria, encouraging them to rebel as well. But whether they were still loyal from their time being patronized by the previous king, or if the letters reached them late enough that they saw what Naram Sin was already doing to the Kishite rebellion, they had the good sense to stay loyal to the regime. And so when Naram Sin brought his battle-hardened army against whatever the southerners were able to cobble together, they were crushed in a single battle. With the southern leader Amar Girid taken captive and put on display, and then executed in Nippur before gods and men. Uruk was flooded like Kish had been, and the southern rebel cities were plundered hard, with their goods being sent as offerings to the temples in loyal cities. The capital had been surrounded, the empire shattered, and somehow Naram Sin had restored everything back into place in under two years against nearly the entirety of Mesopotamia. 
So fierce was it that in the span of a single year, he fought nine pitched battles, an absolutely unheard of feat even in the era of year-round professional soldiery. Following this, upon his triumphant return to Akkad, the people of the city came out and begged him to not be simply a god, but the protective deity of the city, a tremendously important position that instantly elevated him to the status of high god. Now, were the people actually begging for this, or was it all a huge ego trip? History is silent on the question, but... Whatever the case, it is undeniable that this massively increased his standing among those loyal to the dynasty while multiplying his blasphemy in the eyes of those still opposed to him. That said, at this point, there was no one opposed to him internally left. They had been killed or enslaved or just figured out which way the wind was blowing and shut their mouths good and tight. The God King will suffer no more revolt during his reign because the consequences have been so clearly spelled out. Anyone else would have taken a deep breath and paused for a moment. But Naram Sin was not the sort of God King who paused for a moment. He was busy making the final break with the previous Sumerian way of doing things, expanding his empire militarily and economically. Undoubtedly, he owed a great deal to the three kings who came before him, but he was not content to simply enjoy the prosperity that had been built before. He needed to conquer more, build bigger, and organize more massive productions. In the great temples, we can see that he appears to have looked at whatever temples his father, uncle, and grandfather had patronized, and then given the temples even more wealth and built them up even larger. With regard to the temples, his particular favorite was Ishtar, the other main god of the dynasty, and he undertook massive construction projects to bring her cult into Assyria and the north of the empire, which would in fact play a major part in Ishtar's survival as a goddess for thousands of years after the Sumerians who first worshipped her had been forgotten. Like all Akkadian kings, he placed his many daughters and younger children into temple roles where their wealth and comfort would be assured, but also where they could direct the fortunes of heaven toward the empire and the opinion of the people towards the dynasty. As a god and king himself, he also showered attention on the king of gods and god of kings, Enlil. Now, Enlil's city, Nippur, had been part of the Sumerian revolt, but its status as a special city of religion seems to have spared it from reprisal. Rather, Naram-Sin held a mass execution there before the king of gods of many of the captured prisoners from the revolt as a more peaceful way to send a message, or at least more peaceful than what most of the other rebel cities were subject to. His uncle, Ramush, had funded a large expansion of the Akur, Enlil's main temple complex in Nippur, and so to exceed even this, Naram-Sin ordered that the entire temple would be redone on a grander and more massive scale, outshining any Mesopotamian temple that had come before. We have work records that show the government pouring hundreds of kilograms of bronze, silver, and gold, as well as literal tons of copper, into the renovations. There is a bit of contention with these details, but just keep this in your mind. It is a notable achievement by itself, but it's far more important in the legend that will be recounted next episode.
Naram Sin built plenty of other things as well. In one year name, he takes credit for making large improvements to the canals around Nippur, and we have plenty of records showing that he continued his father and grandfather's penchant for large-scale production, gathering skilled workers like carpenters, joiners, and goldsmiths by the dozens or even hundreds for the largest projects. But while we say that he built these things, it's obvious that he was just ordering the construction of these buildings. Even more than most kings who take credit for constructions, we know that he had very little part in the building process, since by all accounts he appears to have never once paused in his military campaigns. Having crushed the rebellion, he apparently felt so confident in the security of his homeland that he packed his soldiers onto every boat he could find and repeated his father's journey into the Persian Gulf. But since it would not be enough to simply repeat what his father had done before him, when he conquers the land of Magan, which probably corresponds here to the trading cities around the modern-day Emirates, he doesn't plunder them. Well, he does plunder them, but he actually conquers them and brings them, at least to a certain extent, into the empire. Now, for a long time, this claim of conquest was viewed skeptically, but there have since been found records of more frequent trade and communication with McGann, the conquest presumably opening up more trading opportunities and necessitating more bureaucratic crosstalk, making what had once been taken as idle boasting of a deeply arrogant man into a very likely fact. As to the actual conquest, we know very little, so likely the fighting was fairly easy, though the logistics of it would still have been impressive. There doesn't appear to have been a major campaign right away after this, though since he's said to have always been out conquering, it's likely that here is one of the times that he paused to have a series of minor campaigns along the direct frontiers of the empire, possibly against the Gutians of the mountains in the east or the Amorites of the desert to the west. Regular victories would have been necessary to keep these people in check, since being disunified nomads, any particular chieftain could have just a few good years in a row, then decide to start picking at the fringes of civilization. A man as proud as Naram Sin must have found it frustrating to have such a constant pricking on his empire. He was able to control the civilized peoples well enough. There was the threat of overwhelming force preventing rebellions, of course, but ever since then, he'd been on a domestic policy campaign of improving and reforming imperial administration. Partly this was accomplished in the same way he did everything else, he just took what the last three kings had done and made it more and better. He took land from locals and gave it to Akkadian nobles, just as Sargon had done, and further increased the amount they had available to offer in patronage, ensnaring ever more locals into the patronage web and enmeshing the Akkadian classes into the local society at the very heart of the economy, in the agricultural and pastoral sectors. Additionally, he continued the practice of constructing dedicated Akkadian administrative complexes in cities throughout the empire. These bureaucratic centers were much more like what we would now think of as government centers than the palaces that had previously been the center of governance in any given city. Here was not necessarily a place the local king or governor would go every day, though said king or governor would undoubtedly have been Akkadian or at least Akkadian-aligned, and thus working in support of the administrative complex. 
Rather, it was a place for scribes and mid-level officials to do the real work that needed to be done, maintaining records of production, labor, conscription, taxes, and trade. All this to keep the local region honest and to keep the capital apprised of local conditions. And in fact, under Naram-Sin, we start to find major evidence of a civil administration running parallel to the military one. In Sumerian times, civil administration wasn't even a thing. Anything that could fall under that banner by our standards was taken care of either by military means or by the household staff. But with the Akkadian expansion of civil governance, the household staff evolves and occasionally borrows from the military to become a full branch of government carrying out these massive labor projects, logistical operations, and factory-style productions. A keystone in the imperial bureaucracy becomes the office of the land surveyor. It seems a large number of people were renting land claimed by the royal dynasty, either as a legal fiction justifying taxation or under an actual lease agreement. And so it was the land surveyor's job to not simply keep on file all the boundaries of all the plots of royal land, a huge task in itself, but also each year to measure out the rise or fall of the two rivers, determining mathematically and observationally how far irrigation water flowed through the channels and thus how much arable land would be usable that harvest, determining from that the level of appropriate taxation based on mathematical models of yield per acre. Some seriously sophisticated stuff, and a practice that began to take hold not just in the royal household, but among temple and noble landholders in general. Every conquered region previously had their own ideas about agriculture, record-keeping, and land use, but Naram-Sin proved to be a unifier and systematizer even beyond his predecessors. His bureaucrats in the various administrative centers were tasked with providing mathematical models for agricultural and pastoral production, based off central theoretical estimates produced in the capital. Most critical was to determine how many acres a three-man plowing or harvesting team could manage given local conditions, and estimates of yield per acre, which would be assessed at tax time against actual production to determine what tax rates and labor levies would be appropriate for that particular area. And along with this introduction of mathematical modeling for production came a standardization of weights and measures, the first known to history to be imposed at this scale. Under Naram-Sin, official recording and official taxation all occurred using official, standardized measurements. But Naram-Sin was only getting started. All this new bureaucracy was creating an absolute mess of paperwork, or clay tablet work as it would have been at the time. And so Naram-Sin even standardized the forms of clay tablets, requiring that they be produced on mass-produced tablets with squared corners of a uniform size. There were different sizes and slightly different shapes for records of different kinds, with reports on the largest, squarest, and cleanest tablets, while receipts were made smaller and rounder. The forms themselves were pretty standard within a region, but across the region they varied greatly, and so standardized forms were issued to be followed by all subsequent scribes and written in the most precise of handwriting. Soon enough, 
what was flowing into the capital was a flood of clay tablets set to a standard uniform and precise enough to please even the fussiest modern bureaucrat. And still, Naram Sin was unsatisfied. And so he went in to the language itself, and in the first deliberate change to the writing system since the invention of writing, produced simplified forms of every cuneiform sign, possibly even cutting the number of signs down from about 900 to about 700, rotating the script 90 degrees, and demanding that every scribe in the empire retrain on his new system pretty much immediately. And this, more than anything else, would be the greatest legacy of Naram Sin, the writing, mathematical, and bureaucratic systems surviving and growing for a thousand years, well past the end of the Akkadian Empire, until the gradual end of cuneiform writing itself. But he didn't see it that way. Likely, he only thought of all this as a means to an end, or a way of ridding himself of the irritant of non-standardized logistical systems. What Naram Sin valued was taking up his grandfather's challenge. Sargon, if you'll recall from last episode, in one of his legends declared that any king who wishes to match him should visit all the places he did. Naram Sin, of course, was looking not merely to match his grandfather, but surpass him. And so the next stop on this lifetime of conquest was to march his army north, recreating Sargon's campaign up the Tigris River that conquered Assyria. Well, Assyria was already conquered and a pretty well-integrated part of the empire, so he continued onward into the mountains of the Caucasus region. He marched into the region that would eventually come to be known as Armenia, battling the Subartu people and defeating their king Dahiz Atal, capturing him and demanding the nominal submission of Subartu. He did not try and hold this land directly, though, contenting himself with vassalizing the nomads, since the Armenian mountains were considered a wasteland in which the seed of civilization could not grow. This campaign lasted two years, and at the peak, he managed to do what no Mesopotamian had ever done before and discovered the source of the Tigris River, far in the mountains. This he claimed for the Akkadian Empire though no evidence of any real holding or building up there is apparent. Then he went back home and marched again, this time attempting to find the source of the Euphrates River. This seems to have required a bit less conquest, since the region of Syria and eastern Anatolia was nominally already Akkadian. That said, it seems this expedition put that nominal Akkadian control to the test. Prior to Sargon's conquest of the region, modern Syria was split into two kingdoms, called Mari and Ebla. Ebla had recently been defeated by Mari, then Mari was defeated by Sargon. Well, as Naram Sin marches north, it seems Ebla has begun to grow resurgent. It may have been provoked by Naram Sin's march north, thinking this to be Eblan territory, whatever nominal submission their grandfathers may have made. And so the Akkadians found it necessary to reconquer Syria, for good this time. However, this was a more challenging prospect than it would first appear. There was, after all, a reason that Sargon had so much trouble here two generations previously. 
The enemies that the Acadians were used to facing, the civilized people of the north, south, and east of them, all had noble, heroic traditions. And so when Akkad went to war with them, they could all be relied upon to come out in the open and have a proper battle to decide things one way or the other. The cities of Syria, however, had a terribly annoying tendency to simply hide behind their high walls and offer an invader cash to simply go away, then to continue on with life as it had been. This was almost certainly how much of Sargon's campaign had gone after Mari was destroyed. All the minor cities were more than happy to offer a bit of tribute and nominal submission to simply make the scary invader go away. But this was not enough for Naram-Sin. With Ebla and its tributaries now in open revolt, the Akkadians marched to Armanum, possibly one of the most strongly fortified locations in Bronze Age Mesopotamia, with three layers of high and thick walls. Naram-Sin would not be able to get to the capital of Ebla without passing fearsome Armanum, and in some places the fortress is referred to as a mountain. But Naram-Sin had a secret up his sleeve, something he'd been working on over the long course of a lifetime spent campaigning. He had, it seems, perfected the art of siegecraft to such an extent that he was able to punch holes in all three walls of the city and make short work of the garrison and king that ruled there. How he did this is lost to history, sadly, and we aren't going to get any good concrete details on siegecraft at all until Babylonian times. Still, the Battle of Armenum was so great that it was this, and not the subsequent total destruction of the city of Ebla, that is featured in the year name for that year. With Syria not simply pacified, but now properly conquered, and with administrative systems being implemented in those cities that were not destroyed, Naram-Sin proceeds, like his grandfather, to explore the riches of the region. He heads south to modern-day Lebanon, battling unknown foes, possibly the Amorites, possibly the early Phoenicians, and takes a large haul of the famous Lebanese cedars back to treeless Mesopotamia. He even takes another expedition to the Taurus Mountains for another load of silver and tin. How well he solidified his hold on this region is a matter of debate. My own belief is that he started the process here much like he did everywhere else, but he's starting to get well along in the years, and with the conclusion of this multi-year northern expedition, he will not have much time left before the eclipse that will coincide with his death. Naram-Sin's final few years are concerned with events closer to home. He battles invading barbarians from the Iranian mountains, a constant annoyance throughout his reign, and engages in more temple building and in the management of his empire. Naram-Sin dies of natural causes after 37 years on the throne in the year 2218 BCE. His death is the high watermark of the Akkadian Empire. And if we look at the parts of his record that are most likely to be true, then it is impossible to find anything except extraordinary success for his entire life. But Naram-Sin actually went down in history as the cause of the empire's collapse and the worst of its rulers. Join me next week as we look at the slanderous legends that arose after his death and begin to witness the destruction of the Akkadian Empire.
Thank you for listening.